Hey, it's Guy here. So we've been super busy working on a bunch of live shows this summer. And in fact, this very Thursday, check your podcast queue for my conversation with the founders of Reddit. Alexis Ohanian and Steve Huffman are incredibly insightful and also very, very funny. You will hear a lot of laughs from the live audience in San Francisco, so stay tuned for that and for more live events coming to your cities and towns throughout the year. But right now, we've got one of our all-time favorites from the HIBT archive, so enjoy. We ended up going from zero to 800 homes in a matter of four weeks. And I have to tell you, I thought that this was it. Like, this was our rocket ship to the moon. You thought, we made it. We're here. We got it. Right. If, if you build it, they will come. And yeah. look what's happening. And so we get introduced to 20 investors in Silicon Valley. Ten of them reply to our email. Five of them meet us for coffee. Zero invested in us. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. On today's show, the story of how a side hustle to pay rent led Joe Gebbia to build a company that now has more rooms than the biggest hotel chain in the world. Ten years ago, even five years ago, most of us would have thought the idea of renting out a room in our home to a complete stranger, a little creepy. Even spending the night in someone else's home you never met would probably seem weird, especially on vacation or a business trip. But now it's not just normal, it's actually the preferred way to overnight for millions of people around the world. Even celebrities do it. And the company that made all of this normal, of course, is Airbnb. And the guys who started it had no background in travel or hospitality or even technology. Joe Gebbia graduated from art school at the Rhode Island School of Design. Brian Chesky, his co-founder, was Joe's college buddy. They played pickup basketball together. And after they graduated in 2005, both Joe and Brian moved out west. Brian went to L.A., Joe went to San Francisco. And in that first year, Joe, who was designing book covers at a publishing house, worked really hard to convince Brian to move up to San Francisco to start a business. And as Joe tells the story, after some prodding, Brian agreed. Both of us simultaneously quit our jobs. He left his, I was at Chronicle Books full-time at that point, and, and I left to, um, uh, to dream up something with him. And you guys were like in your mid-20s or 25. So you didn't need a whole lot of money, presumably. Uh, at this point, no. We're just a couple of college grads, you know, eating ramen. Yeah. Why does everybody eat ramen? Everybody eats ramen. It's so cheap. There's like ramen, ramen, ramen. I mean, you can get rice. You can it's, it's rice, cereal too. I mean. Anyway, so you guys are there. You're eating ramen. And what? You're just like spitballing ideas? We're spitballing ideas. And that first week was so exciting. I mean, the it first week he comes, you're, you're oh like... Oh my God, yes. I mean, that first week felt like RISD again. This place was full of ideas. And then something ominous happened. A letter came in the mail. I open it up. It's addressed to me. I pull it out, and it's from our landlord, yeah. who politely d- states that our rent is now 25% higher than it was the month before. Wait, For, just in one month, he raised it by 25%? 25%. And that's legal? 
it was not under rent control. Okay. Believe me, I looked into it. Yeah. And so were you like freaking out? Of course. I went ran to my my online banking and, and was like, oh my God, oh my God, can I make rent next month? And Brian did the same thing. And we realized that we we almost couldn't. We weren't getting paychecks at this point. Yeah. So this is a moment where it, our backs are against the wall. And I, I feel like all the creative training that we'd received started to pay off because we started to think about, okay, well, how can we design our way out of this? And that was when I, I reflected on a previous experience that I had back in Providence. The day before that I, I drove cross country, I sold off all my stuff. And when I was having that yard sale, this guy, guy pulls up in this, the red Mazda Miata and he starts looking at my stuff and I'm getting pretty annoyed because I'm ready to go home. But he ends up buying a piece of art that I was selling. So we get to talking and he tells me all about how he's about to go into the Peace Corps and he's driving cross country and he doesn't know a soul in Providence. So I invite him out for a drink that night and I make the mistake of asking him, so where are you staying tonight? And he makes it worse by saying, actually, I don't have a place. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh, man, you I mean, what do him, you do? Yeah, you have to give him a place. Like, we've all been there, right? Yeah. Like, do I host this guy? So before I know what I'm saying, I'm like, hey, you can stay on an airbed in my living room. So that night I set him up in the living room and I, I, I go to bed and I try to fall asleep. I'm staring at the ceiling thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? There's a complete stranger in my living room. Yeah. What if he's psychotic? So I get up, I tiptoe to my door, and I lock my bedroom door. The next morning we wake up, we get breakfast together. It turns out he was not psychotic. And the piece of art that he bought hangs in his classroom. He's a teacher now. And he's still, presumably you're still in touch with him. Yeah, his name's Joseph. We're still in touch. So so this is the dude that inspired what would eventually become Airbnb. So how did you, so you're in your apartment, your rent's going up 25%. And what, you, you say, let's just rent out a room in our apartment? Well, I'm looking at my laptop. And there's a design conference that's coming to San Francisco, the Industrial Designers Conference, right? And on the conference website, in big red letters, it said, hotels sold out. And I'm thinking, oh, man, what a bummer. Designers want to come last minute. They're not going to have a place to stay. And in that instant, I look up and I'm looking around the living room. And I go, wait, we have so much extra space here. And I have airbeds in the closet. And the idea of hosting people on airbeds had gradually become natural to me. And the thinking is there'll be more than just the place to sleep. We can cook breakfast in the morning. We'll pick them up from the airport. Uh, we'll give them a neighborhood guide and a map to San Francisco. So did, how did you get the word out? How did, how did the designers know to, that this was available? Well, we, you know, we didn't want to use any of the classified websites because there's going to be people in our home. So we made our own. What do you um, mean you made your own? Well, we designed our own website. But how did, so you designed your own website that said what? Well, it said who we were. It said about the, this concept of stay with us and we'll, we'll provide these things for you. Um, so this it, website it, was just for the design conference. That's it. This, you is made for it. Men, this is meant to be for one weekend. And what did you call it, the website? It was literally called airbedandbreakfast.com. And we start to get emails from around the world. Designers who needed a place to stay. Emails from London, from Brazil, from Japan. People actually started sending us their resumes, their LinkedIn profiles, to, to vie for one of these, these limited three airbeds. And, and for how much was it? For $80 a night. You could stay in San Francisco with Brian and I. That's a great deal. It was an amazing deal. And do you remember who your first guests were? Yeah. So it was uh, Mole, 
Catherine and Michael were the th- first three guests. And, you know, what, what happened next, I don't think we could have predicted. They stayed with us, and we got to show them San Francisco. They got to, they got to feel like they, they belong there in the sense that they didn't feel like outsiders. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, you know, I'll never forget saying goodbye and, and watching the door, the door click closed and, th- and thinking with Brian, wait, what if we made it possible for other people to also share their experience and, and to host guests in their home and, and show off their city? Yeah. Wait, at what point did you and Brian look at each other and go, okay, man, I think this is our business? Was it like right after that door closed and clicked? And I left? wish I wish it was, but I can't say that it, that was the case. So that December, we both went home for holiday. And at our respective New Year's Eve parties, everyone would ask, so what are you doing in San Francisco? Say, well, we're entrepreneurs. Well, what are you entrepreneuring? And we didn't really have very much other than to say, well, let me tell you about this time where we hosted these three guests on airbeds in our apartment. And one of two things happened. People either said, oh my God, that's the coolest thing in the world. Where can I do that? Or they said, that is the most bizarre, creepiest thing I've ever heard. And they left the conversation. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I've learned is that great ideas, I think they usually start out as polarizing. They're not kind of like, eh, that's kind of okay. Mm-hmm. They either really tug on somebody's emotions or an, a latent desire that they have that's never been answered before, or they really perturb them in some way. But it, as long as there's people who, who really gravitate towards the idea, to me, that's a signal that you might be onto something. So what'd you do? What, how, what'd you guys do next? Well, we knew that we needed a great technical expertise. And funny thing, the roommate who moved out so that Brian could move in was a guy named Nate Bucharzik. Nate was an engineer who found me on Craigslist. And as we lived together, there were some similarities in how Nate and I worked, which is that we come home from our day jobs. And in the evening, we would both work maniacally on our own projects. And I'd look over my shoulder. I remember thinking to myself, this guy has a work ethic just like I do. Hmm. If I ever need an engineer, I think I'm going to call Nate. So here we are, January of... 2008. So I meet Nate for a drink. I, I tell him about this, this weekend experiment with these three guests. And uh, Nate loved the idea. He's like, we can use the internet to actually get people off the internet. How cool is that? And he had these like this coding experience that neither you nor, nor Brian had. He was a computer science degree from Harvard. Yeah, he sure did. So I guess at this point, you have your, uh, your team assembled, you've got your idea. Uh, you have your website. So when do you when do you really decide to launch it? We all agreed that we would launch the next version of our site, Airbed and Breakfast, at the next big tech conference. Because actually, we thought the original opportunity was housing for conferences. Right. So the next big one that was coming up was South by Southwest. And every year, the same thing happens. Hotels sell out months in advance. People scramble for housing. And it's also the, the, the place where some of the, the tech greats had launched before us. Twitter had launched there, Foursquare and others. And we thought, well, this is perfect. We're just going to follow the rocket ship that the, all of them did. Yeah. So at this point, we have about three weeks to build before South by Southwest. I'm doing design. Nate's doing the coding. Um, we're, we're just pulling, pulling the pieces together. And no money at this point. Oh, no money at all. Just doing this just like on a shoestring. Half a shoestring. Yeah. So we get it out just in time. We ship it. When you say you ship it, what do you mean? Um, we release the next version of the site. Okay. 
and we think this is this is the next greatest thing. And at this point, there's not a single listing on it, right? Not yet. Okay. We actually had um, six people put up listings in Austin, and we had two people book those listings. Oh. One of them was Brian. <laughs> wow. So it was not a smashing success at all. This well, was, did you get? Were you guys like sad, or were you laughing about it, or? Were you... Oh, no, this was completely demoralizing. Yeah. Here was this idea that we were so excited about, and nobody took us up on the idea. So we learned two things from Austin. The first was that exchanging money in person is really awkward, especially inside of a home. So we thought, well, why do we, people have to exchange cash in person? What if we just bring the transaction online? What if we allowed people to seamlessly pay with their credit card, same way you would for traditional accommodations on the internet, but instead you get somebody's home. Right. And suddenly we realized we had a business model. We said, well, maybe we'll just take a transaction fee as we flow the funds from guest to host. The second thing we learned is that there were people who did want to travel where there weren't conferences taking place. They're emailing us, including our first three guests, Catamol and Michael, email us, hey, I'm going to Vancouver next week how do I stay in somebody's home? I had such a good experience with you guys. And we're like, well, is there a conference going on? And we said, well, why does there need to be a conference? Maybe this is just a travel site. Hmm. So we went back to Nate and we said, well, Nate, let's, let's add payments and let's make this a travel site. And Nate started to warm up to the idea, but it had some real questions about how to get a marketplace like that started. So he started to build something even more ambitious? Well, actually, he moved back to Boston. No. <laughs> To be with his girlfriend. And so kind of, you know, the band's falling apart a little bit. And that's when we had an idea, which was, what if we relaunch this new version of our service and we do it uh, at the crest of a tidal wave of press, which in summer of 2008 was Barack Obama. And specifically, Obama speaking at the Democratic National Convention in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Where there was a housing crisis because 100,000 people were anticipated to see Obama speak, and there were less than 30,000 hotel rooms, most of which were picked up by you know, delegates. So this is a real problem. In fact, the mayor of Denver at one point thought about opening up the city's parks so people could camp out. Hmm. And we thought, well, what if we timed the relaunch of our service? This will be the third launch. During the DNC, we can ride the coattails of all the Obama press to bring a lot of awareness to this marketplace. And so that's exactly what we did. We hustled, we flew to Denver, we met people on the ground, we got local press, which turned into regional press, which turned into national press, and eventually international press. Wow, and so this is still weeks before the convention, right? Yeah, this is like uh, July 2008. And what happened? Well, uh, we did a live interview with CNN from our living room, and we had um, about 100 people actually book and pay with a credit card through our service which this was like the first sign of, of a working, viable marketplace, even to the point where we were getting customer service calls for the first time. Yeah. And that just like was your cell phone? Yeah. <laughs> How did it go? It went great. We ended up going from zero to 800 homes in a matter of four weeks. So 800 homes are on this site called Air Bed and Breakfast. That's right. And I have to tell you, I thought that this was it. Like, this was our rocket ship to the moon. 
you thought, we made it. We're here. We got it. Right. If, if you build it, they will come and look what's yeah. happening. And they came. Yeah. And then the convention ended. <laughs> and all of those numbers came crashing right back down. Hmm. So here we had a dilemma because at this point, we'd also started talking to investors. We thought, well, this is a great time to talk to investors. Our numbers are up. Yeah. Look, it's actually working. We have stories that we can share. We've got press. We get introduced to 20 investors in Silicon Valley. 10 of them reply to our email. Five of them meet us for coffee. Zero invested in us. Wow. It was completely demoralizing. Yeah. Like 2008 was the worst year of my life. Really? Oh my gosh, yes. Because you've put so much into this thing, right? Like I didn't have, there was nothing else going on in my life except this. Hmm. And to put it in front of very credible investors, the guys that have picked the Googles and PayPals and YouTubes of the world, and for them to look you square in the eyes and go, well, this is weird. I'm not invested in this. What did they say? What, what, why? Well, they didn't say this, but here's the underlying reason. It's because we've all been taught since we were kids that strangers equal danger. Right. No one in their right mind would invest in a service that was based upon this pitch that we want to build a website where people publicly post images of their most intimate spaces, their bedrooms, their bathrooms, the kinds of rooms that you usually close when people come over. And then over the internet, they're going to invite complete strangers to sleep in their homes. It's going to be huge. So, so this is like after the conventions, you're thinking, we got it. We're going to get all this, make all this money and all, or raise all this money. And, and all of a sudden you get back to San Francisco and nobody wants to give you any money. Exactly. Nobody. So how are you keeping the, the business going if you didn't have any, any cash? We did raise a round of financing. We call it the visa round. <laughs> Which means you, you maxed out your credit cards? You know those binders where you keep baseball cards? Yeah. I had one of those, except there weren't baseball cards in it. There were credit cards. We would go through Visa after Visa to MasterCard and then finally to Amex, just maxing out credit cards. And that's how we funded ourselves. And I can tell you, like, there's not, no worse feeling than getting a credit card statement that's only going up with no hope of ever paying it down. Yeah. It was, there's a name for this, by the way, in the startup world. There's a name for this phase of a company where you have a product in the market, but they don't fit yet. It's almost like two gears that don't touch. There's this mysterious gap between these, these metal gears yeah. that you can't figure out how to close the gap. And they call this the trough of sorrow. It's this long period of time where you don't have product market fit. And in the data or the analytics, it looks like the, the Midwest of analytics because it's perfectly flat. There's zero growth. And this is when people tend to quit? This is when people tend to quit. In a moment, when we come back, how Joe Gebbia and his partners eventually climbed their way out of that trough of sorrow. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, helping to protect those on the front lines every day. As the father of a healthcare worker, 3M employee Chris understood how important it was for his daughter and nurses like her to be protected during COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, he worked hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots. Hear his story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair Chance Hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at C-H-E-C-K-R dot com slash N-P-R. It's How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2008. Joe and his partners have no investors and a lot of credit card debt. And they're trying to figure out how to raise cash. It was at this point that Brian and I are in the kitchen late one night. It's like two in the morning. And we're just trying to keep each other's spirits up. And it's during the the peak of Obama versus McCain. This is like September of 08. And we're riffing on this idea of being airbed and breakfast and providing, maybe we gave our hosts some breakfast cereal to give to their guests. Oh, wouldn't it be funny if it was politically themed? Oh, yeah, we could call it like uh, Obama-O's, the breakfast of change. Or maybe Cat McCain's, a maverick in every bite. And we actually ended up making breakfast cereal. Wait, you made breakfast cereal? Like actual cereal to eat? Well, it's a good question. Which is, how do you make breakfast cereal? Yeah. And how do you do it with not a zero budget, but a negative? You're in a deficit, by the way. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I picked up the phone. I called uh, Kellogg or General Mills and started going through the pitch. And then I, I go, hello? <laughs> hello? <laughs> they had hung up on me. And then it dawned on me, well, maybe we don't have to make cereal. Maybe we can just go to the grocery store, buy some cereal off the shelf, we could design our own box and, and put the bag of cereal in our own box, seal it up, and, and sell it that way. Just sell it on the street? Well, maybe we'd make a website. We know how to do that. So this would be, this would be instead of Airbnb or in addition to <sighs> you it? No, at this point, we weren't really sure. Yeah. Then the question was, well, how do you make the boxes? So I found an illustrator. I did the art direction, pulled all the pieces together, and I found a RISD alumni in the East Bay here in San Francisco that I went in and... You know, I I poured it all out to this guy. I said, you know, here's the idea, the concept we're really excited about. Here's the mock-ups and the sketches. And he goes, all right, here's what I'll do. I'll make 500 of each box. You guys don't have to pay me up front, but uh, pay me a commission based on every sale. And it dawned on us that with 500 of each box, well, that was a limited edition. That was a collector's item. We could number them on the top of the box out of 500. And suddenly, we decided we could sell a box of Obama O's and Cat McCain's for $40 a box. What? This is just a crazy story. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even, I've forgotten about Airbnb. Where, where are we going? What's going on with this interview? So we make, <laughs> look, it's, it's an entrepreneurial yeah. bender yeah. going on here. So uh, we make Obamos.com. We get the boxes of cereal. We put a um, hundred boxes together and we mail them out to all of the press that we, that we could, mail to like every morning show had a box of these so we ended up get featured on all of these different shows cnn did a live interview with us about breakfast cereal and we were the number one politically themed video on cnn.com for an entire day and after that cnn an interview we ended up selling out of obama o's which is incredible but like where did you think you were going to go from there like well did you... it, it almost didn't matter because at 40 dollars a box times 500 boxes we yeah. made $20,000 in breakfast cereal. Yeah, that's which a was breakfast cereal. Barely just enough to pay off our credit cards. All right, so you pay off your credit card bills 
And and then what, you go back to air bed and breakfast? Well, we got to this this sort of fateful dinner one night with one of our mentors. It was uh, Michael Seibel and Justin Kahn. And so um, we're out to dinner with them and they had been helping us the last couple of months and we're kind of like at the end of the rope and they can tell and they're like, you guys need some help. You should participate in this incubator program called Y Combinator. So we're at dinner and we look it up on our phones and the deadline was the night before. So we're like, oh, come on. But they end up emailing the guy who runs it, a guy named Paul Graham, who they knew. And they say, you know, hey, Paul, there's these guys. They've got this concept and, and they'd really benefit from being in your program. You know, would you take a look at their application if they send it to you? And Paul writes back and says, yeah, if they get it to me by midnight tonight. Wow. So Brian and I race home. It's like 10 o'clock at this point. We start to fill out the application. It's pretty intense. Yeah. Uh, so the next day we get this call back that our application got accepted. So we got to the next round, which was an interview. So we, we prepared in advance. We would grill each other with all these really tough questions. What's your growth rate? How do you plan to expand internationally? Um, you know, what's the next big feature you're going to build? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And so we go into the interview. It's in a small, tiny room at the Y Combinator office. And there's four partners around the table. We sit down, and the very first thing out of Paul Graham's mouth is, you mean people actually use this? And we go, yeah. And he goes, well, that's weird. <laughs> wow. Well, he said, that's not a great way to start no, an interview of any no. kind. Um, it kind of went downhill from there. Uh, <laughs> we're walking out of the room and kind of thinking like, this is our last chance effort. And it didn't go so well. And that's when I remembered that I had brought a box of Obama's to give to him as a gift. So I go running back into the room. I whip out the box. I hand it to him. I go, hey, Paul, we got this for you. He goes, oh, where'd you buy this? I go, well, we made it. He goes, what do you mean you made it? And I told him the story in 60 seconds. And he goes, wait, so you guys funded your company based on selling breakfast cereal? And he immediately turned around and put the box of cereal on the shelf behind his desk. On the ride home, we get a phone call from Paul Graham to inform us that he'd like to offer us a spot in the Y Combinator program. And uh, we later found out that the reason we got in wasn't because of our idea. It was because through the breakfast cereal, we had proven to him that we had hustle, we had grit. We had the, if we could figure out how to sell breakfast cereal for $40 a box, we could figure out how to make our website work. All right, so you get into Y Combinator, and uh, what, what, does it, like, how, what does it do for you guys? What, what happened there? Y Combinator was a game changer for us. And I'll never forget the first office hours that we had with Paul Graham. He sits down with us and he goes, where's your market? And we look at each other and we're like, uh, we don't really have a market. No one's really using the website. But we go, you know, in New York is showing some promise. We have 30 hosts in New York who are renting their, their extra rooms out in their homes. And he goes, so let me understand. Your, your customers are in New York City, but you're here in Mountain View. And we're like, yeah, we're here for your program. And then he goes, what are you still doing here? Go to New York City. And he points his finger at you. He's got this thing where he like looks at you and points his, his finger. And it was in this moment, sitting in this room, this tiny room, where something profound changed for us. Hmm. Because up until this point, we had subscribed to the mythology of Silicon Valley. Yeah. Which is that you have to solve things in a scalable way. Right. Because what happens when one day... 
the rocket ship takes off. You don't want to get left behind because your code held you back. And so we had tried to solve our problems by, by coding our way through it. And if you remember, that didn't get us anywhere because we were in the, the Midwest of, of analytics. Right. And so here comes Paul Graham, who gave us permission to do things that don't scale, such as fly across the country and meet the early adopters of your service. Yeah. And it was in that moment that we felt so much more free to think even more creatively about how we could get our service off the ground. If you could do things that don't have to scale, what else could we do? And as we start going through the search results and looking at the hosts, we identified a pattern. And the pattern was this. People just generally didn't know how to take a good photo of their home. Hmm. So the photos were really bad. So, so the photos that you had on the site at that time were just like crappy photos? Well, you know, people were using their camera phones. At the time, it was like flip camera phones, which is even oh, worse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they were taking pictures at night. Uh, it just wasn't, they weren't merchandising their home in a way that you would want to stay there. So therefore, no one was booking them. And we thought, you know, I, I went to art school. I, I took some photography classes. I, I've done photography my whole life, in fact, as a hobby. I'm willing to bet if we just flew out there for a weekend, we could probably take some nicer photos and we wouldn't charge them for it. We'll do it for free. So that weekend, we bought plane tickets. Brian and I flew to New York. We emailed our hosts, all 30 of them. We rented a really nice camera and went door to door throughout Manhattan, Brooklyn and, and other parts of New York. And it's funny because I'd knock on the door and then they'd open the door and I'd introduce myself as, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm Joe. I emailed you from Airbnb. And they're kind of like looking over my shoulder. So yeah, where's the professional photographer you promised? I go, well, uh, that's me too. I'm also going to take the photos for you. Yeah. So you're the guy taking the photos. So yeah, I'm taking photos. And, and what's cool is that the photos are looking pretty good. I'm getting the lighting right, the composition. You know, I'm kind of um, staging the place a little bit, just you know, fluffing the pillows and, and making sure that the, the place doesn't look cluttered. And I'd show the photos on the back of the camera. Say, hey, what do you think? You know, do you like these? And these hosts were like, oh my God, my apartment looks amazing. I can't believe it. Do you, do you want to stay for some tea or coffee? And so I'd end up spending a few hours sometimes in their, in their homes just talking with them. And this is where instinctively we went into design research mode, hmm. which is going out and talking to the people that you're designing for such that you can understand the world from their point of view to inform your point of view. Yeah. And so I call this enlightened empathy, which is seeing the world so closely in the shoes of the person that you're creating for that you can see the world of the way they see it. Uh, and you bring those insights back and you combine it with your own design point of view to create something new. So here we are in the living room. They pull out their laptop. I say, could you show me how, uh, how you check your calendar? Show me how you message with guests. And in those moments, we saw how our perfectly designed interface completely and utterly failed. Huh. Why? What, we, what we thought took two or three clicks to get done, people were taking 10, 12 clicks. They were stumbling around, getting lost within our own website. And you guys did not know that up until that point. We had no idea. And so it wasn't until we actually sat down next to our, our early adopters, some of our most passionate early customers, and they revealed to us the mysterious gap between our product and our market was the inefficiencies of our user interface. 
I mean, what's what's interesting about this is that you don't strike me as like an egomaniac or somebody who doesn't like feedback. You strike me as somebody who really wants it, and it's surprising that it took you guys so long to discover this. this I know, like, right? I know, but once we did, it was it was like um, it was like a jackpot. Yeah. So we we came back with all of our our discoveries. Something interesting happened. Our numbers that second week <clears throat> went from two hundred dollars a week in fees, which is what we were making for six months, right? Which is not sustainable. <laughs> Three guys cannot live off that in San Francisco. Yeah. Right. Our numbers jumped to $400 in one week. In one week, just from pictures and making a couple of simplified well, changes. I looked at Nate. I said, Nate, is there a bug in the system? Because that's just, that's just crazy. Yeah. How did we double in a week? And sure enough, we had done more reservations with the host that we had met. Huh. And what's what's very interesting, Guy, is that we didn't know this at the time, but because New York is such an international destination, we had guests coming from Berlin, we had guests coming from London, from Sydney, from Vancouver, who were coming as guests, experiencing this new service of staying in somebody's home. They go back to where they came from and they'd have this epiphany moment, this aha. They go, wait, I have an extra room. Why don't I rent that on the site? And they would sign up. Then they would sign up. Yeah. So, so at what point did you were you able to actually attract money from investors? Was it around that time? It's precisely around this time. So, what I've learned is that when the gears start to click, investors can hear that, and they actually this time they came to us, and we had offers coming in from a variety of different groups, and the one that shocked us the most was Sequoia Capital, which was a pre it is a preeminent. Uh, venture capital firm in Silicon Valley that we thought, well, maybe one day, <laughs> like a year from now, we'll go talk to them. But actually, they were knocking on our door, our door to talk to us. And we ended up um, closing a deal with them. Uh, we got our first round of financing, which was a huge relief. Uh, we could pay rent comfortably um, and we could hire, start to hire a team. I'm wondering, at, at what point do you remember sort of sitting with, with Nate and Brian and saying, I think this is going to be really big. Well, one night, this is in two, 2010. It was probably like 1130 at night. I was really tired. I'm at the, uh, at this point we have an office. And I used to look at every listing that got added to Airbnb. I, I would go through it at night and just click through each of them. And I come across this one that says Fiji Island. And I'm like, hmm, what's that? I click on it. And sure enough, somebody out in the South Pacific listed a five-acre private island on our site. Wow. Com complete with personal chef, uh, <laughs> complete with, you know, water sports. And I'm looking through the photos of this thing going, holy cow, this is incredible. And it was in that moment where I realized the, the power of this platform is that we, we put it out there and the creativity of the people who have, who have contributed back to it has gone beyond any of our expectations. So you guys have, have obviously grown much, much bigger since then, uh, bigger than than most or all hotel chains. And you have some similar challenges to, to companies like Uber um, with some cities saying, hey, you know, you guys should be regulated like hotels. Um, so how do you how do you respond to that? I think about that question in the context of innovations over the last hundred years. Hmm. And 
there are three examples that come to mind of new ideas that entered the world that had a pretty rough start, but are now so commonplace in every day that you'd laugh if you thought like, oh, wow, like people were against that at one point. So ATM machines at one point, and I think it was the 1970s, were, uh, had a lot of criticism. And I think there were actually laws being written against them in certain states throughout the U.S., because it was this new and different way of, of banking where you didn't have to go inside and, and, and talk with a, you know, a person behind a desk who could maybe upsell you on other services. You just went to a, you know, a computer in a wall and, and retrieved your money. But of course, can you imagine today without ATM machines? No. Uh, the VCR, I think, is another great example. It was first patented in uh, the mid-20th century, but it didn't really become a product until the, the 80s, the early 80s because it was met with such resistance from incumbent industries that didn't want people to watch movies at home. The car is another example where when the Model T came out in 1908, um, you know, it represented a new way to travel, a, a new way to, to, a new form of transportation. And there were certain cities that were against the car. And there were actually uh, laws drafted to, um, to you know, outlaw cars. But, you know, after a year of trying a new, more efficient way of transportation, uh, the people demanded that they didn't want to go back to horse and buggy. <laughs> and so the policymakers, you know, had to modify the laws to, to what the people wanted. Yeah. And so yeah. I think the world is ready for our invention, given yeah. that there's been over 100 million people that have stayed in homes all over the world. And the good news is that as cities come to learn about what, what we do and what we offer, they, they tend to want to work with us because they see that there is an econo economic impact that uh, allows people in their cities uh, in different neighborhoods to uh, to benefit. When you, I think last year, Airbnb was valued at like $20 billion and probably more today. I mean, does that, is that crazy to you? Does that shock you when you think that you just started this thing and it is an idea that really went nowhere for the first couple of years in your apartment in San Francisco and it's now worth like billions of dollars, like with a B. Does that mean anything to you or to you? Is, is it just a, a number on a piece of paper? I don't think about it too much. I mean, yeah, those things can change. If you look at the first dot com, uh, you know, when I was growing up in Georgia, I was so enthralled by every day there was a new story of a new company that started in Silicon Valley or San Francisco. And that planted a very deep seed with me that one day I wanted to, to be a part of that. And so I also remember in the first dot com of companies that were here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah. You know, there's there's a, a list of 10 of the hottest companies from the 1990s, one of which you would still remember. Uh, it's because technology moves so quickly that if you're not thinking about what's next, the world around you can change faster than you do. Joe Gebbia, co-founder of Airbnb. Since this episode first ran last fall, Airbnb's value has jumped to $31 billion. And in the second quarter of 2016, the company finally turned a profit. By the way, that company he first tried to build, Crit Buns, which is a butt cushion for art students, this was a real business for a while. There is still a website for it. And every now and then an order still comes in. And I still run down to the garage and pack them up and Wait, how many crit buns do you have in your garage? <laughs> I think there's a few hundred. Wow, you have a few hundred crit buns still in your garage? You know, oh it's my like, God. It's a funny thing because 
it reminds me of like where I started. Yeah. And I, it's very grounding. Wait, what's a website? Is it is it critbuns.com? Literally critbuns.com. Okay, we're gonna plug this. Go on to critbuns.com and order order your crit bun. <laughs> Only six hundred left. <laughs> And please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about what you're building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, Squarespace. Squarespace is used by millions of entrepreneurs and businesses. Visit squarespace.com to start your free trial and use offer code BUILDIT for 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move, get your unique domain, and create a beautiful website with Squarespace. Hey, thanks for staying with us because it's time now for How You Built That. And we're going to check back with the very first startup we had on this part of the show, a company that is taking on a very tough problem. We could actually refer to it as trash juice. Trash juice. Juice. J-U-I-C-E. <laughs> Which is the runoff from dumpsters and garbage trucks. If you're an urban dweller, you walk by and you smell it, and you do not want to go anywhere near that. Okay, so Michael Vanitti and his partners came up with a device to put a stop to trash juice before it even starts. Think of it as a utility cart. There is a 100-foot hose on it, and when you pull the trigger at the end of this hose, foam comes out. Think of it scrubbing bubbles times 1,000. And these scrubbing bubbles are kind of like the secret magical ingredient here. Michael says they're full of bacteria that eat up all that junk in dumpsters and in trash chutes. And then the foam kind of evaporates, so you don't even need water to clean it up. And no water, no trash juice. We tested out the product. We got incredible feedback. And the maintenance guys, they were like, you guys just cut my cleaning time in half. Michael's company is called TP Foam. And since we spoke with him last year, he sold about 200 cleaning carts and gallons and gallons of the garbage-eating foam. Most of his customers are property managers across the country. And Michael says the company's doing well, but it's costing him a lot of money to get the word out. I mean, a perfect example is we have a really big customer, one of the largest real estate developers and property management companies in the entire country, and they invited us to come to an event in September. It's very expensive and very far out of our budget, but if the biggest person on the block invites you to come, you have to say yes, and you just have to figure out how to do it. That event he's talking about, it's a trade show in Texas, and Michael's company is in New Jersey. And to ship one piece of equipment might cost $2,000. So that's the big thing for us because we're in equipment sales, it's not software or anything that fits in a little briefcase. We have to be kind of very strategic where we're going to go. But so far, Michael says TP Foam is doing a pretty good job at managing cash flow. Since January, the company's done about $400,000 in sales. And he's now turning a profit. But if you ask Michael what he thinks about the whole thing... It cracks me up a lot. Because I used to be in the modeling business. I was never a model, but I used to be on the business side of it in a very glamorous world. And now I hang out in uh, trash rooms. But I love every second of it. That's Michael Vanitti of TP Foam in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. To hear more about it, head to our Facebook page. And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. We love hearing what you're up to. 
And thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more, you can go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. Better yet, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter. It's at How I Built This. Our show was produced this week by Ramtin Arablui, who also composed the music. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpur, Claire Breen, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Lawrence Wu. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. The news is about more than what just happened. You need to know why it happened, who made it happen, how it's felt in the communities you care about. NPR's daily news podcast, Consider This, gives you all of that, with context, backstory, and analysis on a single topic every weekday. It's not just information, it's what the news means. Consider This from NPR.